The whole idea here is that how can we actually help these individuals that are post-concussion syndrome and provide them with a better life? Hi, I'm John Lajmodier and welcome to Go Far Together, a new podcast from the University of Regina that introduces you to some of the university's brightest thinkers. From outer space to reconciliation, from first responders' mental health to the connection between cannabis and the NFL, we'll explore how these researchers are changing the world and how we understand it right here on the prairies. Join us as we go far together. Dr. Patrick Neary is an exercise physiologist and kinesiology professor here at the University of Regina. Patrick has spent the past two decades studying concussions and CTE, or chronic traumatic encephalopathy, a brain condition thought to be linked to repeated head injuries and blows to the head. Last year, the NFL gave over $500,000 to Patrick Neary and the University of Regina to study new treatments for head trauma. These treatments come from what might be a surprising source, cannabis. There are new concerns about football injuries after another tough hit in the NFL overnight. These players come down with dementia and then Alzheimer's and then they're gone. I'm really wondering if every single football player doesn't have this. The debate around concussions has roiled the NFL for years, prompting calls for rule changes and from some to even ban football entirely. Major lawsuits have been fought in court and far too many former players have taken their own lives following years of depression and chronic pain. In response, the NFL has been pouring money into research to look for possible treatments. Patrick and his team are looking to see if cannabis and its active compounds, CBD and THC, can be used to treat and even prevent brain injury. What we do know about CBD is that it's an anti-inflammatory. It's neuroprotective. What I'd really like to see is athletes taking certain combinations of CBD and THC on, on a daily basis so that there is that neuroprotection as well as there is that anti-inflammatory response that can happen if you end up do getting a concussion or you're being hit. If there's some way that this research can actually show the beneficial effects of actually taking a tablet or a syringe of the cannabinoids, uh, a tincture, and uh, on a daily basis to feel that there's a protection involved there to be able to allow our children to function properly as they go through their sport as well. Patrick first learned the NFL was funding cannabinoid research from one of his graduate students, Elizabeth Thompson. I always read a lot of different things about cannabis, and I look at the politics, I look at the new regulations, and I just happened to see a call from the NFL that they had put up a bunch of money to research cannabis. So I just shot it over to Patrick, hey, check this out. The NFL's putting up a million dollars to research cannabis for contact sports. And he said, that's awesome. I'm going to apply. And I was actually a little bit shocked. I'm like, oh, okay. And he did. He assembled an amazing team from all across Canada. The scope of this includes sports psychologists, clinical psychologists. We have a pediatric neurologist. We have a cardiologist. We have people in pharmacokinetics and biochemistry. So we've got a, a huge team. There's about 14 or 15 individuals that we just put our brains together. Getting funding for cannabis research is no small task. 
There's stiff competition between researchers due to the restrictive laws that still exist around the plant. We submitted this application and it came back out of 106 applications and thereafter they came back to us and said, yeah, we'd really like to fund your projects. And so it took off from there. And so it was quite an amazing journey. And and as I mentioned earlier, we're very humbled by the fact that we're two applications out of 106 that have been funded to look at, I think, a very, very important project. To understand the effects cannabinoids may have on concussions, it might be worth asking, what exactly is a concussion? A concussion actually is the movement of the brain inside the skull. And if, if you think of a whiplash type of an injury, you know, the head going forward or backwards, what's going to happen is the, the brain inside the skull is going to move forward and then it's going to move backwards. And that may move forward and backwards again. Patrick believes the anti-inflammatory nature of cannabinoids and how they connect to our brain receptors may be key to treatment. So if you've got more and more CBD in the body, it seems to create a neuroprotection or a protection of your neurons, and in particular in the brain. And the reason for this is we've, we've got a system in our body called the endocannabinoid system. In this clip from the PBS series Nova, exploring the science of cannabis, we learn just how important the endocannabinoid system is. Cannabinoid receptors, named after cannabis, are found on nearly every organ in the body. They bind with our own cannabis-like molecules called endocannabinoids, which regulate functions like sleep, cognition, memory, and mood. One of the most amazing things that happened was the discovery of the endocannabinoid system. Every mammal has one, and this is a system of chemicals and receptors throughout the brain and body. So the body really produces cannabinoids as it's needed. And the whole function of the endocannabinoid system is to create a homeostasis. When someone gets a concussion, that homeostasis in the brain is interrupted, causing chemicals to leak into other parts of the brain. The whole idea is for us to now to take a look at how can we best create this balance, this homeostasis, by activating the endocannabinoid system. To figure out how to best achieve this balance, Patrick has divided his study into three parts. Our very first study is actually going to do what we call a dose escalation study. We're going to start off with a very, very small dose and we're going to give it to our uh, contact sport athletes that are going through physical training. And so it'll be outside of any regular season that they're going to be playing. And so we're going to start them at a very, very low dose. They're going to take the dose twice a day, morning and evening, for about 14 days for two weeks. Then we'll bring them back into the laboratory. We'll test them. We'll measure their cerebral blood flow, their oxygen levels. We'll look at their blood pressure. We'll look at some of the psychological metrics that we're going to look at, questionnaires, etc. And then after that two weeks, we're going to bump them up again. And then we're going to continue to bump them up. And then we're also going to take blood samples to see how much of the CBD is actually incorporated into their system. Patrick and his team will then move into the second part of the research a placebo study. You're going to go through your football season. We're going to put you on 2,000 milligrams for the first month. And then for the second month, you're going to be on a placebo. And you won't know whether you are on the CBD or you're on the placebo. 
And so what we're going to do is what we call a crossover design, and we're going to put this into a season of football. For the third and final phase, Patrick will discover the potential real-world implications of his research. The third study is going to look at pain management and whether we can get these individuals that are addicted to opioids off of those. It's really to look at pain management and trying to get individuals, ex-athletes, former athletes off of their pain medication. The opioid epidemic is a national crisis. 25,000 people in this country have died from an opioid poisoning in the last five years. In the first half of... I was taking 14 to 1,600 pills a month. Do the math. 14 to 1,600 pills in 30 days. We can do it. It's almost 70 a day. Former NFL quarterback Ray Lucas shared his story with a room full of student athletes at Harrison High School about rising to the top and then losing it all to opioid abuse. What the hell's the matter with me? I didn't understand what was going on. Like, how could you just have surgery and then you're feeling good and you just stop taking pills and I'm on the floor for three days? Like, I thought I was going to die. I don't need to tell you the problems associated with opioid drugs and medications and uh, very, very sad Some of the other research have actually shown that those that are actually on opioids are trying to satisfy this homeostatic response that the body really needs. Beyond opioid abuse, the devastating effects of chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE, can cause serious long-term mental health issues that put former athletes' lives in danger. There have been a number of NFL players who have taken their lives because of this situation. Junior Seau, as an example. And then another death. An apparent suicide by a powerful athlete. A beloved NFL star apparently took his own life today. And so he shot himself in the heart so that the researchers in Boston could actually take a look at his brain to see whether there was CTE. And, you know, that's the sadness about these contact sports. And we need the organizations. We need the NFL. We need the NHL. We need FIFA to come forward to help these individuals out. And again, simply by providing funds for us as researchers to look at this whole area so that there are less and less of those taking their lives. If the consequences of CTE are so devastating and the anti-inflammatory properties of cannabis well known by now, why has it taken so long to get to where we are today? CanSolve, a medical clinic, mental health agency, and cannabis education center works to help answer some of these questions. The history of cannabis begins millennia ago. Cannabis is one of the oldest domesticated plants in the world, going back its use into ancient China and Egypt. In the Western world, we found out about cannabis through India, where physicians brought back cannabis to be used in North America, where it was used for over a hundred years by some of the best known physicians in the English world. At that time, Canadian drug companies would even compete with each other over who had the best cannabis products until the drug was criminalized in 1923. These high school boys and girls are having a hop at the local soda fountain. Innocently, they dance. Innocent of a new and deadly menace lurking behind closed doors. Marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. Medical cannabis research and modern medicine started in Israel during the 1960s. 
It was a, a huge area of research that I was completely unfamiliar with. Even about six years ago, seven years ago, I didn't realize how much research was actually being done looking at marijuana, medical cannabis, looking at cannabinoids. And much of this research started at least 30 years ago, 35 years ago, and it started in Israel. The sun was rising on the ancient city of Jerusalem, Israel is the marijuana research capital of the world. And I wanted to meet the man who started it all. When people call you the grandfather of marijuana research, does that, are you okay with that title? Well, I'm a grandfather, okay. <laughs> I have seven grandchildren. Raphael Meshulam is a chemist, and he became interested in marijuana in the 1960s. Morphine had, by isolated, had been isolated from opium uh, in the 19th century, early 19th century, cocaine had been isolated from coca leaves mid-19th century, and here we were, mid-20th century, and yet the chemistry of cannabis was not known. So That was Dr. Sanjay Gupta exploring the history of medical cannabis research for CNN. In those early Israeli studies, scientists were secretly given cannabis for their research from the police, but the risks paid off with groundbreaking discoveries but the results were revolutionary. They were the first to isolate THC and CBD decades ago. In Israel today, marijuana is an accepted part of medical care for pain, for cancer patients, for sleep problems, epilepsy, digestive problems. They're even looking at Parkinson's and Tourette's. That's a pretty long... At the same time the first Israeli studies were happening, in North America, scientists like Dr. Lester Grinspoon were beginning their own research into medical cannabis. I had the very good fortune of meeting Dr. Lester Grinspoon, and Lester had uh, written a number of medical cannabis books back in the 60s. He was a Harvard uh, psychiatrist, very prevalent in the area. My name is Lester Grinspoon. I'm an associate professor of psychiatry emeritus at Harvard Medical School. I was doing the work that led to the publication Marijuana the Forbidden Medicine. I was increasingly aware of what an extraordinary medicine this is. And it was actually uh, Carl Sagan, NASA aeronautic space physicist, that got him involved in looking at cannabis in particular. Is it rational to forbid patients who are dying from taking marijuana as a palliative to permit them to gain body weight and to get some food down? It seems madness to say we're worried that they're going to become addicted to marijuana. There's no evidence, whatever, that it's an addictive drug, but even if it were, these people... Are I had that very good fortune of meeting Lester, and he said one of his goals was to actually see the cannabinoids on the kitchen table and mom and dad saying, you know, okay, Johnny, Sally, take your CBD <laughs> and then go out and play. <laughs> So, so very similar to the multivitamins that came out, you know, years and years ago. So again, you know, I like to share that story because it's had such an influence on, on me and, and opening this Pandora's box. And here's a plant that's on the planet that could be used in a very beneficial way. And while legalization has opened doors for cannabis research in Canada, obstacles like the U.S. government's classification of cannabis remain. And of course, unfortunately, because cannabis is still a Schedule One drug in the United States, which is, in, in my personal opinion, absolutely crazy to even think about that. 
we find that the research that's been done on cannabis is overwhelmingly looking at harms. In Canada, red tape and hurdles mean it is more difficult to study cannabis in Canada than it is to study heroin. The biggest barrier really is financial and the responsibility of that really goes to our government. And there's been some advocates, especially in Canada, that are calling on the government to reduce the barriers of entry. To buy a license, to be a licensed producer is very expensive. To buy a license, to be a microprocessor, that's expensive. To buy a license to sell or distribute your product, that's expensive. And so by keeping the amount of money that's necessary to buy into the regulated market, it's actually disincentivizing people from participating because it just costs so much money to be involved. That was Patrick's graduate student, Elizabeth Thompson. Patrick's interest in cannabinoids was sparked by another graduate student, Jodapal Singh, who now has a PhD and master's in physiology from the University of Regina. In my undergrad studies, I had a uh, break in between two classes. And I just decided to fill it up with a class that actually I didn't need credit-wise. But I ended up taking exercise physiology, so an undergraduate level. That's actually where I met Patrick was uh, during that class. Patrick as a person, I think he's very fun. That's probably the primary way to describe Patrick. (laughs) And then otherwise, yeah, he's always working all the time. So, you know, there's no shortage of passion or desire. Even now, this late in his career, he's still very ambitious. Qualities you'd almost see in somebody who's just starting. Patrick originally wanted to become a veterinarian. But I had way too many allergies and it didn't make any sense. He ended up taking an exercise physiology class that would change the direction of his career. And that just changed my life. And I became very, very passionate about exercise physiology, exercise science. He later found his way to studying concussions in athletes from an unexpected source. Love. I had a graduate student. She was in love with a hockey player and said, do I have any research equipment that we could actually use to uh, look at concussion? And so that led me down this journey looking at concussion. For someone who knows all too well the effects of sports injury, that doesn't stop Patrick from getting out in the ice. Every Thursday morning I play ice hockey. You know, I'm 65 years of age and I feel like I'm 35. Now, there's a few days where I wake up and I've got some aches going on here and there. But uh, I, I'm still very, very active. You know, I play ice hockey. I love to hike. I kayak. I water ski in the summer. Uh, I love to water ski. I cycle. I'm an avid cyclist. I, I cycle all year long, actually, even in sunny and cold. Many parents are reasonably concerned about their children getting injured playing contact sports a concern Patrick has had himself. I think parents need to realize, and again, I I was a parent too of four children, and my eldest son Seamus played football with the University of Saskatchewan when he went through and he played for five years. And of course, people are looking at me and saying, you know, you're a concussion researcher. What the heck are you doing allowing him to play? Parents need to know that the majority of concussions happen on the playground or kids falling off their bike or their skateboard or skiing, or something else. It's not necessarily contact sports. Some of your, your listeners might totally disagree with me on, um, on you know, they're very adamant that, you know, kids shouldn't be doing these things at such a young age. I know that there are more and more countries that are now looking at heading in, in uh, soccer or, or European football, and they're not allowing their kids to head the ball until they're at least 16 years of age. So there are different methods that we can actually help. We love our sports. It's 
provides so many benefits in so many different ways from a, a physical uh, exercise, you know, learning to work with individuals, etc. Again, I think there are different ways that we can approach this and it's just, you know, having a new mindset to figure out how we can actually accommodate all of this to, to work out. While Patrick's work with the NFL is just beginning, cannabinoid treatments have already had real-world results that give doctors like him hope. Some of this research actually started years ago uh, with a young child by the name of Charlotte. And some individuals from Colorado came up with a, this formulation where it was a high CBD, low THC, and they gave it to Charlotte. And Charlotte went from about 300 seizures a day down to one and two. And so it was just amazing, absolutely amazing. And at the beginning of the study, she was not able to put together more than two or three words in a sentence. She just, she had to think about, okay, what am I going to say next? And over that course of the eight weeks, she then (laughs) began speaking in full sentences, which was just amazing to be able to see this transformation in this one individual. I think that the majority of researchers want to give back to society. And that's the whole idea that I have had as well. I've been very fortunate in my uh, academic career. And because of that, that's sort of one of the ideas is let's give back to society. While Patrick now has NFL funding for his research, he worries a lack of funding hampers cannabis research as a whole. That's probably the biggest thing is our struggles to get research funding. So if there's a sugar daddy out there, (laughs) I'm going to put it out there uh, listening today. We would be more than happy to take your money and and continue this valuable research. (laughs) The trickle-down effect, I think, is so important. I think that's probably would encapsulate what, what I would like to see before I pass on this earth is to say, hey, you know, it was fortunate that this money came along and and we looked at this particular area simply by providing funds for us as researchers to look at this whole area so that there are less and less of those taking their lives. You know, we're very passionate about giving back and wanting to help society in some other way. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of Go Far Together. Check back here to learn more about the world-leading research being done here at the University of Regina. In the next episode, we'll talk to Lori Campbell about her leadership advocating for Indigenous peoples in Saskatchewan. 20-year-old me playing basketball for the Regina Cougars never envisioned that a role like this would exist or that I would certainly be in it. Thanks again, and be sure to like and follow this podcast and visit uregina.ca to learn more about the groundbreaking work at the University of Regina.